0: And so let us hear God's word from Titus 1, beginning of verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. You should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The grass weathers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, Paul here thus far has laid out for us his calling as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has given us a foundation, really, for his words. The words originally given to Titus and the believers in Crete, but then apply for us today. Paul not only then writes these instructions to Titus and prays that God will bless Titus as he does the work delegated to him by Paul, but he also encourages the believers on Crete to listen to Titus, and again, by extension, that we would heed him as well. Paul has used some very important terms in these opening verses. We have seen the term faith and hope, knowledge, grace, peace, eternal life, and some of your translations also have mercy. Um, And so now we transition from these opening words to basically putting these ideas into practice. And so, if you do happen to have uh, the outline there, um, we basically start the main part of the book, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 3, verse 11. We uh, see a a number of things that Paul addresses and uh, the the needs there in Crete. And so, uh, the first subsection then is here in chapter 1. Uh, In many ways, we could go from verses 5 to 16, because verses 10 to 16 flow right out of verse 9, um, but we can subdivide it, verses 5 to 9, and then verses 10 to 16. So we'll look here first at the qualification uh, for elders. And so, verse 5 again reads, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. All right, now, first of all, notice what's not there. Paul commonly, in his letters, begins with a word of thanksgiving, thanking God, praising God for the work that is being done in the particular group of believers. You don't see that here. Maybe it's because he had just seen Titus, possibly even a few weeks prior to this. But whatever it is, he doesn't do that. He just jumps right in, basically. Now, he says here, first of all, I left you in Crete. Obviously, the assumption is Paul was there too. But this does not refer to Acts chapter 27. When Paul was sailing from Jerusalem to Rome, they stopped in at Crete just momentarily. uh, But that's not the connection here. It was another time. And most likely, and church tradition would uphold this, that Paul came to Crete after he was released from prison in Rome. So, yes, there's some uncertainty here, but we're pretty sure that's what happened. Now, the scenario that uh, presents itself here, though, is a bit uncertain as well. Did Paul come to Crete for the first time, plant churches, spend several weeks or months or however uh, however long it was, and then leave and leave Titus behind to finish establishing the churches? Is that how we should understand what's going on here? Possibly, but it's also possible that Paul came to Crete at an earlier time, had planted the churches, and now returns to Crete and finds that there are a number of problems, and so he leaves Titus behind to help lead these various churches. Um, We don't really know which one it is. It could be either one. Uh, But I'm inclined to think it's the first one, and we'll see a few clues as we go through these verses that uh, I think would uphold that idea. And so Paul likely has gone there for the first time to plant churches, and for some reason, he leaves. Was he called away? Um, Some emergency or something like that? Uh, Was he driven out? Think of what happened to him on a number of occasions, maybe Thessalonica might be one of the most... Obvious ones? um, We don't know. Um, But it does seem like he left prematurely. It is possible that Paul left and planned to do this leaving all along, but it does suggest to us that uh, this was prior to what he had intended. What is clear is that the believers in Crete needed help. They had some instruction, they had some foundation laid, but more needs to be done. And so Paul leaves Titus to do this. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, beginning here in chapter 1, verse 5, going through chapter 3, verse 11, there are a number of things that have to be addressed. And we'll look at these, of course, in uh, the weeks and months to come. So here in in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul gives us two reasons why he left Titus behind. The first one is uh, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now, the word here for lacking actually is the same word for leave. It's just a slightly different form. And so, to leave behind, now this has the idea of left undone. And they're very similar uh, in meaning. And so, Titus now must straighten it out. The things that are left undone. One commentator said, "Do do do you notice the mixed metaphor here? Something that is not straight, something that's a mess, you could say. But then something that's unfinished. And so it's a mixing of metaphors here, Uh, not greatly, but but to some degree. And so Paul here is telling Titus, look, you need to straighten out the things that are undone. And that then applies really through chapter 3, verse 11. Now, certainly all believers, all churches can grow in grace. All of us lack in our understanding, in our love, in our godliness. And so... Uh, Again, these words are are quite relevant for us. Now, (laughs) the first thing that is left undone, though, is this issue of elders. So the rest of the verse says, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And that then is uh, here, verses 6 to 9. He expands on it, and uh, in some ways through the rest of the chapter. Now, notice here how Paul says he commanded Titus. And in fact, that pronoun is repeated. I, I commanded you. Now, once again, um, it doesn't seem like Titus needs this word. But by saying this word to Titus, the rest of the believers in Crete hear it. Paul had commanded Titus to do this. Titus isn't just doing it on his own. He's not just picking up a mantle and and taking on something that was not given to him. It was. Paul commanded Titus. Titus to do these things, and so hence this emphasis. Um, now, uh, it is very likely that Paul gave instructions to Titus before he left, and so again, this is not so much for Titus, but for the benefit of the believers in Crete, um, and, uh, and so on. Now, notice then, the first thing that needs to be done, the first thing that needs to be set in order is established leaders in the church. Makes sense, Right? How can you have an effective church if there aren't good leaders? So it makes perfect sense that uh, he would address this first. All right, now, note this phrase here, uh, a clause here, appoint elders in every city. All right, let's turn a moment to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Now, this is Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, he went to Cyprus, then on up to Pisidia and Galatia, as we know it. And he came to these various places, the Antioch that's in Pisidia, as well as Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then he basically turns around and revisits all these cities. And so notice then in verse 21 of Acts 14, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So <clears throat> it seems like Paul is, if you will, doing the first stage of the first missionary journey in Crete. He came to the cities the first time, but instead of retracing his steps, Titus is going to retrace the steps, so to speak. And so again, notice verse 22, strengthening the disciples, exhorting them to continue. And then of course, verse 23, appoint elders. And so uh, Paul's doing the same thing now here, um, you know, several years later. At least 15 years later, he's doing the same kinds of things. All right, now let's turn to Acts chapter 6 a moment. One of the things that becomes a big topic of discussion in the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus is uh, this push toward the organization of the church. And obviously we see that, right, the appointing of elders and so on. And some people really run with this, and they'll take the idea of appointing elders and they come up with the idea of a bishop in the sense of what is called a monarchical bishop, okay? He's acting like a king in the church, you might say. Um, but I don't think we need to go in that direction at all. That's what we see in the second century, but I don't think we see Paul teaching that here in the 60s, the mid-60s. Because look at what we have here in Acts 6. Remember, this is when uh, they needed some deacons. And so in verse 3 here of Acts 6, "...therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." You see the same language, but more language here. And so when Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, and when he appointed elders there in, in Acts chapter 14... It's following this format. It's not just, you know, this autocratic, I'm just going to dictate who's going to be a leader. No, even the apostles here in Acts in Jerusalem says, okay, now you pick out people of good reputation. So basically, you could put it in our language today, the people nominate whom they want as a leader in the church. Then in this case, Titus is going to examine him, and um, if he passes that exam and so forth, then he's going to be ordained, laying the hands on them, appointing these people in this position. So this is not talking about a top-down approach. We do see that in the second century, but not here in the early church. And so this is why we follow the pattern that we do. We ask for nominations for leaders, we examine them, and then uh, there's a final vote and the ordination and so forth. And so, as Presbyterians, we're we're following this pattern. All right, now, if you come back to uh, Titus, uh, notice then, we see the term elder. Um, You'll see the term bishop in verse 7, and that's the same term we see in 1 Timothy. But here we have the term elder. Now, the basic meaning of the word elder is an old person, okay? And um, we, we, if you will, start with this idea. An elder is someone who is aged, someone who has wisdom, someone who has experience, okay? So um, not all men have that, of course. They may have the age, but not the wisdom and experience. And so here Paul is telling Titus, who then in turn is telling the people, you need to find some older men who have wisdom and experience, have that good reputation as we saw in Acts 6, and appoint them. And this is um, perfectly expected because this is what they did in Israel. In the Old Testament, we see the elders in the gate. Not all of the older men sat in the gate, but the ones who had wisdom, the one who had uh, understanding and experience in civil matters, sat in the gate and made decisions. But again, they tended to be older men. Same is true for the synagogue. The elders sat in the gates, as it were, of the synagogue, and they dealt with religious matters. Again, it wasn't every man. It wasn't even every old man, but those who had wisdom and understanding, those who had a good reputation, basically. And so the wisest men... With age and experience, you could say, and so now it is no surprise at all that the early church is following the same pattern. Okay? And so we see that here. Now let's turn a moment to First Timothy, and chapter three, and here tonight, and uh, probably for the next two times, uh, we'll look at these verses. And so I want to keep going back and forth here with First Timothy in this context. Note especially verse six. It says, 1 Timothy 3, 6, not a novice. In other words, not a new convert. Not someone who is young in the faith, but someone who is older in the faith. So, all of a sudden now, we see, well, it's not just age, but it's age in a spiritual sense. So, for example, someone might be in their 30s and have been a believer their whole lives and not known anything different they have more age and wisdom than someone who might be in their 50s, but has only been a believer for a few years. And so this certainly is, is a part of our, our evaluation, you might say, in considering different men. All right, now, <clears throat> here in 1 uh, Timothy, obviously, we start uh, with the bishop there in verse 1. And then in verse uh, 8, we talk about deacons. But as you come back here to Titus, there's no mention of deacons at all. Why is that? Well, this is one of those clues that I mentioned before. It is very likely that Paul is establishing the churches for the first time. It's not that he did it and left for a year or whatever and came back. they, They don't have any deacons. In fact, they need elders. And so the idea here is that these churches are new. These churches need elders because, um, but you might say that's what you start with. The deacons, like we see in early the early church in Acts, right, you don't have them right away. You do have the apostles right away. So we follow that pattern. We have elders right away, okay, or as soon as we can, and then later after the church is more established, we uh, appoint deacons. And so note the difference in First and Second Timothy. The assumption is the church in Ephesus is more established, more mature. But here in Crete, it's, can you say, brand new? And so they need uh, these elders. All right, now back here in Titus, notice then the next uh, phrase here, in every city. In every city. Now, obviously, there are multiple cities on Crete. And so possibly that means that there were these church plants in every one of those cities. It's also possible that it means several of them, say, you know, whatever, there are 30 cities and maybe there are 20 of them that have church plants now. We don't know for sure. And it's also possible in the larger cities they had more than one. Remember, of course, they started as house churches and, uh, you know, our structure here would, would be huge for most of those house churches and uh, most of them would have 50 or less people. Uh, the, the wealthy ones, like we see, for example, in the early part of Acts, they could hold up to 120. Uh, but that was about it. And so, you know, we're used to these mega churches with hundreds of people, even thousands of people. That, that's not what you saw uh, in the early church. And so uh, Paul is saying, appoint elders in every city, every one of these house churches, even if there's only whatever, 12, 15 people there, whatever it is. Every church must have an elder. If you do not have an elder in the church, it's strictly speaking not a church yet. It's maybe in the process. We call it a mission church using our lingo, uh, but it's not, um, can you say, a full church yet. You need those elders. And notice it's plural. You need more than one. can't just have one elder there. There must be more than one. And, uh, and so we, again, follow this pattern as Presbyterians. All right, now, you see then what Paul is telling Titus. I'm giving you these tasks. The first one is very general, really applies to the whole book. Hey, set these things in order. And then he gives this very specific one in terms of appointing elders. All right, well, how do we appoint them? What kind of men are we looking for? Well, we talked about the age and experience idea already because of the term elder. But now, beginning in verse 6, we see some specifics given to us, this list of qualifications. And so we must ordain men, appoint men who have these characteristics. Now, of course, once we're ordained, we must maintain them, we must grow in those things. Now, all believers should follow uh, these qualifications, but the godliest of them are the ones that we set apart as elders. All right, now, I will point out some of these things as we go along, and we'll do a little bit today, and and we'll do more uh, in the subsequent weeks, but the qualifications we see here in Titus are not exactly the same as we see in 1 Timothy. Some of them are the same, but some of them are different, and that is likely because the uh, church in Ephesus was more mature, the church in Crete is not, and so you have uh, some of those initial needs. Uh, remember that the Cretans are liars. I mentioned that already in verse 12 and some of the issues with Zeus and so on. And, well, yeah, you have some of that in Ephesus, but there were some different needs. And so, hence, this accounts for some of the differences uh, between these two lit, uh, lists of qualifications. But there definitely are some of the same. And the first one that we see is. Blameless. So in verse six it says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. All right, now before we look at that word, did you notice there's no verb in this sentence either? <laughs> hey, like we've seen in, in Psalm one thirteen. And this has, of course, led to some questions, what's Paul doing? And and some people think Paul is just kind of inserting a ready-made list and Maybe that's true to some degree, but he is adjusting it for the needs in Crete. But just recognize, he just jumps right in here. And he says, if a man, or literally, if someone is blameless. All right, now, look at verse 7. A bishop must be blameless. Then if you turn to 1 Timothy 3 again, if you look at verse 2, a bishop must be blameless. And if you look down at verse 10, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Obviously, this is a very important idea for Paul that leaders in the church must be blameless. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, clearly, it cannot mean sinless or perfect, without blemish or flawless. Because, of course, none of us would qualify. Now, Jesus, the elder, the deacon, yes, he is perfectly blameless. But the term here, blameless, does not mean perfect. The idea is this. A leader, a potential leader, must uh, be blameless in this way. If someone tries to charge him with a crime or accuse him of wrongdoing, Basically, you cannot find enough evidence to convict that person. So as we say today, right, a person is innocent until proven guilty. Okay. So in verse 6, notice there are two things after blameless. You have good husband, good father, basically. In verse, uh, verses 7 and 8, there are five vices, right, not things, and six virtues, and then you have the ability in verse 9 in terms of teaching. So <clears throat> the idea here then is that the, one of the leaders that you're going to appoint must be blameless in these things. So, for example, if you look there at verse 7, right in the middle of the verse it says, not quick-tempered. Okay, well, you cannot accuse a person of being quick-tempered and have it stick. They're blameless in that way of course, some people might try to do it and they might try to spin the evidence and all that sort of thing. Yes, they did that with Jesus and, and so on, but they couldn't make anything stick until Jesus admitted he was God and that was enough for them. But this is the idea. We are blameless. We, we cannot be convicted of whatever it is. In the next verse, the first one is hospitality. Okay, so can one of these men be accused of not being hospitable? If so, then they're not qualified. And so here's here's the idea of blamelessness. An elder cannot be charged with a crime, so to speak. Another way of putting it is an elder is going to have unquestioned integrity. Same is true for for the deacon. He is going to have irreproachable character. Or as we saw in Acts 6, a good reputation. So here's the idea. So again, it doesn't mean that we're perfect, (laughs) but it does mean that if somebody accuses us of something, that they can't make it stick. Now, certainly we all can grow. All of us can get better in all of these things, as believers and certainly as your elders and deacons. But here again is is the main idea. All right, now... um, The rest of verse six then talks about two more things, and uh, the first of these then is the husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Again, let's turn to First Timothy, in chapter three, verse two. Same thing. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. If you look down at verse twelve, that deacons be the husbands of one wife. So obviously, this is very significant for Paul, and certainly for the church at large. Now, you might remember when we went through 1 Timothy that I I talked briefly about some of the different views, so let me briefly review them here again. Uh, Literally, the Greek says, a one-woman man, or you could say, a one-wife husband. Now, what does that mean? Well, some people say... well. Clearly, this is prohibiting polygamy. Hey, we're not Mormons, or you know, whatever. Hey, we can't have more than one wife at the same time. Some will say, "Well, it's okay if your spouse dies and you remarry, but you can't have more than one at the same time." Other people will say, "Well, no, um, you can't have more than one wife. Period." Just one. That's it. That's the qualification for being an elder. Some people will say, well, wait a second. The standards that we see in the scriptures is that if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. That is legal, if you will. If you're the so-called innocent party... In a divorce situation, you are free to remarry. So think of some of what we talked about in Sunday school this morning uh, about divorce and remarriage and how Matthew gives the one exception there about sexual morality and so on. And so some people say, look, if an elder is in this situation and that um, their spouse has died and they've remarried or something like that, that that's okay. That's not what Paul's addressing here. But others will say, "Uh, no, not at all. The elder is to hold to a higher standard. It may be okay for the average Christian to remarry, but an elder cannot have more than one wife, even if it's, if you will, legal in a normal situation. So there are different views in this way. Some people just take this even more broadly and say, all that Paul is saying is that this man is faithful to his spouse. He is monogamous, there's no infidelity, and so forth. And they don't want to get into some of the particulars. Again, the point is, the man is going to be blameless in these matters. Whatever exactly Paul means by this, he's going to be blameless in this way. So no affairs, no pornography, no um, multiple wives on the side, as it were, um, and, and so on. All right. Now, let me pause here a moment and and bring out this point. The New King James starts this verse by saying, if a man is blameless. Now, that word is actually the word someone. If someone is blameless. But that word is masculine. So it's a, a, a man. So hence, the New King James is really paraphrasing here just a little bit. But you see the point. Men are to be elders. A woman cannot be a husband, no matter what people may try to say today. Now, this does not mean that the woman is inferior. That's not what we're talking about. This is just what God has said, that the man is to be the leader. We see that from the beginning with Adam, and the woman is to help. And so the woman is not to be an elder. Now, the other thing that we see is that every one of these qualifications— are in the masculine, which take us all the way back to modify this word at the beginning of verse 6. So again, there, there's not this possibility that, you know, well, yeah, Paul's talking about men, but it could apply to women. Well, that's not what we see in the text. Okay. All right, now, <clears throat> notice the other assumption here then. Whatever husband of one wife might actually mean... <laughs> It clearly means that most of your elders are going to be married. Okay, there's there are exceptions. Think of Paul, for example. Um, but we're generally not talking about single men. We're talking about married men who are elders and even de- deacons. Now there are exceptions to this, but in those accepting situations, that person must be blameless. Must, um, if you will, rise above others and prove that uh, he can lead in some way or another. Uh, If you don't have a family to evaluate the person's ability, then uh, you need to look in other ways. But again, the the primary uh, point here is that an elder's going to be married. All right, so a couple assumptions here. Now, let's look then at uh, the rest of verse 6. Having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. All right, obviously we move here from marriage to parenting. Um, So again, let's look at 1 Timothy and uh, look at chapter 3. And notice how he says it here. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, he says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And then if you look down at verse 12, he says, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. So when he says here in Titus, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation and insubordination, it's the same basic idea. All right, now, uh, notice the, the adjective here, the faithful children. I think the, uh, the way we should understand this is what I just read okay, in, in 1 Timothy. Um, the idea of being obedient and submissive and honoring parents. Now, some people have tried to take this word faithful to mean that the children must be professing believers. And, okay, if they're honoring their parents, it's probable that they will be, but I'm not convinced that that's the idea, that That we're talking about children who profess faith. Um, I think it has more to do with the fact that the child is living faithfully, um, Maybe we're splitting hairs here a little bit, but uh, there's, there's a debate on how, how to take that. Uh, the main idea simply is that an elder will have children that will listen. He will not have children that are accused of dissipation. That's a, an older term here. Your translation may have debauchery or something like that. Basically referring here to reckless behavior, drunkenness. One who goes to parties and gets smashed or whatever. Uh, The person who uh, is engaged in sexual morality, the one who squanders money on ungodly behavior, who is wild and licentious or something to that effect. That's what we mean by dissipation and debauchery. An elder will not have children like this. And then the second key term here is insubordination. Your translation might say rebellious or something like that. Um, children are not going to be disobedient, undisciplined, spoiled brats. They will not be unruly. They, they will not be uh, not subject to authority. My double negative there. Right? <clears throat> now, notice some assumptions here. The assumption, at least one of them, is that we're not just talking about young children. Say, for example, Noah and Matthew's age. We're talking even about older children, young adults, you might say. Certainly, we could apply these words to teenagers, maybe even college students. The big question that faces us here, and not just in this passage, but in others, is when does a child transition from being under the authority of the parents to being under, if you will, their own authority? And especially, how does that apply to young women? And so there are, are many questions here. In fact, uh, I asked uh, Jane Eichirk one time this question. And uh, he's like basically, we have no rule in the BCO that tells you what to do. Because you need to uh, uh, answer this question based on that particular situation. So it may be. that a a young person is 19, and now, hey, they're ready to be out from under the authority of their parents, but then there are others who might be 24, and they're not ready yet, (laughs) so um, this is a challenging question, but generally speaking, what most people will say is the transition from children obey your parents to honor your parents That transition happens, some will say, at 18 years of age, when they're no longer a minor, as we call it in our culture. (laughs) Some people say that this happens after they graduate from college. Some people say it's not until they get married. There are various views on this issue. But whatever it means, and however we apply it, the point is simply this. An elder will not have children under his authority that are wild and crazy. Doesn't mean they're sinless, of course, but they are not out of control. So, to put this then together, an elder is basically an older person, at least older in the faith. He's a family man, he's a leader in the home, he shows himself to be a good husband and a good father. He is blameless in these ways. He does not allow his children to act like unbelievers. They may be an unbeliever, but he won't let them act that way. And so as we read in 1 Timothy, if you cannot do well at home, how can you be a good leader in the church? The home is a training ground, you might say, for men to be elders and even deacons. And so we must be blameless in this way, without accusation as husband and father. Now, once again... Uh, this is, um, does not mean we ha- we are perfect, and if we held to this standard all the way to the very nth degree, none of us would be leaders in the church, but there is this general idea of blamelessness, but, you know, as we look at our churches in our country today, you know, it's amazing to me, and you know, we're, we're kind of insular here, right? We, we've got our little church out here in the middle of nowhere, but you go to some other churches, even PCA churches and OPC churches, and wow, some of them you're like, how is that person a leader in the church? Look at their children. Look at how they treat their, their, their wife. Um, unfortunately, this standard is um, maybe you could say not being upheld, generally speaking, in our culture, and this is why Many churches are struggling. There are many reasons, but this is one of them. All right. Well, as always, there's so much to say here. Uh, But here are the basic ideas. And uh, next week, of course, we'll have uh, Christmas. And so in a couple weeks, we'll return and uh, we'll look at, uh, the plan is, look at verses seven and eight, or at least as far as we can get with all 11 of these. So let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for giving this to us, this uh, these directions to Titus that we might learn from him here now uh, about 2,000 years later. Uh, we thank you for uh, giving us men who, who are blameless and who do lead well. Certainly not perfectly, but we are thankful for this, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help every one of us as believers to try to live up to this standard in the ways that we can. And uh, we pray that uh, the elders here in this church, the deacons here in this church would uh, seek to live by these principles that would live blameless lives that you would help us, um, to, to honor you in these ways that you might bless, uh, the church, um, in, in the, in the years to come. Uh, we pray for, um, For all these things, then, in Jesus' name, amen.